Welcome to this episode of the Windows on Dementia podcast. My name is Lanita Russell and I'm the Principal Advisor Services and Standards at Alzheimer's New Zealand. Dementia consistently ranks as one of our most feared conditions. Unlike some types of cancer, there is currently no cure for dementia, though researchers around the world are spending year after year desperately searching for one. So why is it proving so hard? Is there anything that we can do in the meantime to prevent or delay the onset of dementia? And are we all doing all we can to care and support those currently living with dementia? Here to talk to us today is Professor Shrikanth, Director of the National Centre for Healthy Ageing and Director of Research at Peninsula Health. He is also Professor of Medicine in the Central Clinical School, Faculty of Medicine, Nursing and Health Sciences at Monash University, Melbourne, Australia. A very busy man, he also works clinically as a specialist geriatrician with particular expertise in dementia and stroke. Thanks for joining us today, Shrikanth. Can you tell us why it's been so challenging to make progress on finding a cure or effective treatment for dementia? Thanks for that introduction, Lynette, and thank you for the welcome. It's a pleasure to be on this podcast. Um, this is such an important topic. It is, um, it is something which affects almost every one of us in some way, um, with family members being affected. Um, I have people in my family who have been affected by dementia and my wife's family who've been affected by dementia. And, and it's, it's a question that, that weighs on my mind as to why we can't uh, find a cure easily. It comes down to two things. One is when the disease actually starts occurring. And the second thing is what is a cure in the context of dementia? So if I can talk about the first thing, um, which is when dementia begins, to give people an idea of what dementia means, in a broad sense, dementia is a progressive decline in one's cognitive abilities. So the ability to think, to, to remember, to problem solve, these are things which we take for granted when we're young, when we're healthy. But some of us, as we get older, experience a decline in these abilities. And in some of us who experience those declines, it becomes a lot worse and expresses itself as the symptoms we know of forgetfulness, um, forgetting things rapidly, not being able to do things we used to do before because our brain doesn't allow us to do it. But this process doesn't necessarily begin just in old age. It, it sort of begins, research has, has found that changes that are consistent with dementia can be found even as early as middle age. Now that means that the process has begun even before that. And it takes a long time to come to a point when, when we know that it's affected us. And that's when we have symptoms or that's when other people, such as our family members, begin to notice some changes that are unusual for us. So that's the biggest difficulty in finding a cure for dementia. We don't know when it starts. A cure is often good when you tackle a disease in its early stages. So, for example, in, in cancer now, there's many more cures now than than years ago. And that's because we're able to detect cancer early. For example, a person with breast cancer, they're having screening regularly and and they find a small little lump and and, and the sooner it's treated with the treatments we've got now, 
and the person can live long without recurrence of the cancer. But that's not the case for dementia. It's, it's much more difficult to do that. So that's the first problem. And the second problem is, what, is, what does a cure mean? A cure means you've got to get rid of a disease. And that's what the definition of a cure is. And that's our concept in, in the general public of what a cure is. The problem with dementia is there are multiple causes that contribute to the changes in the brain lead to the expression of symptoms that we call dementia. So for example, there's buildup of things called amyloid proteins, which we've known for a very long time. There's a buildup of another kind of protein called the tau protein, which we've known for a very long time as well. But there's also other kinds of changes that people see in, in brains, particularly when people have died from dementia and we look at their brains under a microscope, we see not just those two changes, but multiple other changes. For example, there's evidence that there's chronic low-grade inflammation, either in the blood vessels or in the brain, that we don't know exists through our life. So when we have several causes or mechanisms or parts to adding up to brain damage as we get older, it becomes hard to pinpoint one cure. So a cure is easy when you've got one thing that you can tackle and you can put all your efforts towards it and you're more likely to get rid of it. But when you've got several things, um, it becomes much harder. And it's, in a sense, these several parts or factors actually act at different stages of our lives. Some of these factors might, might actually affect the brain or its capability when we're younger or when we're at middle age, or some might affect us when we're at older age. And that adds a level of complexity to how to find a cure. You know, when do you start to tackle these factors? I think, in a sense, to expect a cure for dementia is probably false hope. The question is, what other things can we do to, to slow it down or prevent it or delay the symptoms from expressing itself in our lifetime so we can live a, a good quality life? And that's what we call treatments that are not curative, but treatments that either can modify the path of our symptoms or modify the disease in some fashion. Modifying the disease itself means, can we do something about the changes that are occurring in the brain and slow that down so we slow the process of dementia down? Whereas the other path is modifying the path of the disease, which is, can we do something else to stop people from having symptoms, even though we can't change what happens to the changes in the brain. The easier thing to do is the latter one. And that's what was done in the early 90s when people developed these treatments that we still have, um, medications that increase the level of a chemical in the brain called acetylcholine. And, and people found that those people with dementia that, that, that had symptoms had lower levels of these chemicals in the brain. So they tried replacing the chemicals and there appeared to be some small benefit. Uh, so that benefit is not consistent in everyone. Whereas trying to slow down what happens in the brain, what we call disease modification, in terms of the changes in the brain itself, that's much harder. So as you see, we're still in, in the very early phases of trying to find a treatment. We're only in the path of modifying symptoms, not modifying the disease itself, and certainly not close to finding a cure. I think you've simply, as simply as possible, presented to us the complexity, the complexity, you know, of the, the disease and when it starts, the complexity of what is a cure, 
and also the complexity of what is a treatment. And so that makes it even more difficult, I guess, for all of us when we're watching the news or we're reading about the announcements from pharmaceutical companies or about research breakthroughs. It can be really hard for us to make sense of things. How can we tell what is going to make a real difference? I think that's a great question. Every so often we see that in the news, don't we, at the moment, promise of a breakthrough. And some of these announcements might actually be really important breakthroughs at a certain level. However, for the, for the average person to work out whether that means there's something immediately available or whether it's on the horizon is really hard. It's hard for me. When I look at a press release of, a, of such a breakthrough, then I've got to spend a lot of time going back and seeing, well, what is the published work? What does it show? Are the results valid enough for me to have confidence in? Are the results based on good grounding of previous work? And it takes me a long time to do that. So really for the average person to, to reach a well-informed conclusion about whether that is a reasonable announcement that they can pin their hopes on is really hard. And I think the easiest way they can address that is to maybe have a chat with their physicians or, or their specialists who may be closer to, to the information. And it might take time for the physicians and specialists to actually find out more about that and get back to them as well. So it wouldn't be that, that everyone has all the information at the tips of their fingers whenever they want it. So that's probably a hard one. Suffice to say, given the complexity of what I've, I've said before, uh, exists about dementia and curing and treatments, I think to approach these announcements with a sense of caution and not to pin your hopes completely on it till you've found more about it is the best way to do it. The, the, the treatments that are currently available, as I spoke to you about before, um, the ones which increase the levels of chemicals in the brain, they are universally available now and have been so for a long time and they're much less expensive than they have been, but they could still be expensive in the context of lower middle income countries where um, these are not produced in, in bulk and locally. And that's one thing. The second thing is the other more complex treatments that are being tested, for example, the immunological treatments as we call them, the, the medications that are supposed to remove these bad proteins from your brain and hopefully make your brain function better. If they are successful, they are going to be out of reach for the majority of the world's population. And it's not just about the treatment itself, it's about the way you determine whether someone is going to be eligible for the treatment. And to do that, you're going to need to do complex testing, which might include special scans of the brain called PET scans, which are expensive. Sometimes MRI scans, which can be expensive in some other countries, some things we take for granted in the Western world are not available in the bulk of the population globally. Even in our uh, well-developed countries, some of these tests, such as PET scans, uh, specialized PET scans, are out of reach for the majority of people. So really, in terms of global equity and access, we have a long way to go to have treatments that are, uh, that are available for, for people across the world. But it's not just about cures and treatments, is it? Because there are things that we can do to prevent or to delay the onset of dementia, aren't there? 
I think so. And that's, that's a really important message to get out for people. There are certain things about ourselves that we can't change. And that is how old we get. That's the function of time that's inevitable for all of us. Um, whether we're biologically male or female, that is something which is hard to change. And then the genes that we inherit from our, from our parents and our ancestors, that is also not easy to change. And so these are some factors which we can't do much about, but may have an impact on our risk for developing dementia. However, there are several other things that we can understand and know about. And if we have a chance to either do it for ourselves or help our younger generations get through by, by doing these things, then I think we can not only reduce our own personal risk of dementia, but we can actually start to reduce the risk of dementia in the community, the population. One of the, the key things that have been found overall in the last 30 years that might have had an impact on the population incidence of dementia is how well we've treated other conditions, such as our risk for stroke, um, blood pressure management, diabetes management, the things that, that cause harm to our blood vessels and our heart, and then that to have an effect on the brain. For example, people with poor health of blood vessels have a higher risk of suffering strokes, which means they, they might have clots form in their brain and damage their brain, or they might have bleeding in their brain. Now, strokes are clearly a risk factor for developing impairments in memory and thinking, and that can increase the risk of developing dementia going forward. And it's clearly been shown that reducing the risk of having strokes reduces the risk of dementia. And by that, we mean, do we look after ourselves? Do we have a healthy lifestyle? Do we eat well, increase the the amount of fruit and vegetables and nuts and legumes and, and, and other things that are good for us and reduce the amount of things that might not be so good for us, such as fatty foods, a lot of meat, etc. Now, these things can play a big part in reducing our risk for heart disease and stroke going forward. Regular physical activity, and that doesn't have to be strenuous activity. It can be just some, something as simple as going for a a half hour to 40 minute walk a day or every other day or having some more intensive exercise every other day. And these are things that we as individuals can do some things about, but I think that also the, the, the responsibility for that also exists to a large extent with, with our community leaders, with our, with our governments. How do we promote design of communities to live a healthier lifestyle? Chances of having... So these are things which have happened a lot in the last 30 years. If you go back about 30, 40 years ago, people were dying younger from heart disease. People were dying younger from strokes or having strokes and living with their consequence. Now that's not happening anymore. As a result of that in westernized and more sort of developed nations, you're finding that the incidence of new cases of dementia is a bit on the decline. Now that doesn't mean that dementia is going away, but a consequence of that is we're also living longer. And so the numbers of people with dementia are also increasing. So here's a double-edged sword. We're doing well with certain conditions. That's reducing our risk for strokes and, and dementia, but at the same time, we're living longer. And so more people might be living with the condition. So there's certainly quite a few things we can do. And these things have to start to happen at a much earlier age. So it's not just something which you start doing when you're 60 plus. It's something which you start doing right through your lifespan. And hence, that's why it's a community-driven thing. So that's really good news, isn't it? But despite that, we still have people with dementia. And um, 
Even the most promising research can be years or even decades away from making any meaningful impact on the ground. So what should we be doing in the meantime to help support the ever-increasing numbers of people that are affected by dementia? I think this is where Renata, the biggest gaps lie and the biggest opportunities lie. And, and having been through um, family members with the condition, my wife and I have um, navigated the difficulties one might face. And now I'm a physician. I, I know the system. I know the health system. And it's difficult for us. Imagine how difficult it might be for people who don't have knowledge of the health system and the supports that are out there. There's a lot that can be done. There's a lot that's, that's being done, but there's a lot more that can be done. Um, in this in this regard. One of the um, important things is to raise awareness in the public about the symptoms of dementia. Increasing awareness makes them realise, well, is something going wrong with me or my loved one? So finding out what happens early, which we call early detection, is key. Because the earlier you detect the condition, there might be things you can do to start some treatments that are available now, maybe to slow down the path, or start to put things in place so you know you have your your life is organized in a way that you're not sort of re reaching crises at a point when dementia becomes much more severe. I think that's really important. And so trying to put people in touch with the kind of organizations that can support them, carer support organizations, trying to make sure that they have certain important things sorted out early. And so they can have peace of mind and they can continue to have really good quality of life. Such as, for example, if I were to have symptoms, what I'd like to do is um, make sure that I have my affairs in order going forward, my finances, make sure I've appointed the kinds of um, people that I trust to, to look after all that. Once you've done that, then there's other things you can do. Keep active, keep engaged, uh, keep connected with people. Try and be open with your friends and family about what you have so you can start to lift that, that perception or the stigma that surrounds the word. In effect, why should it be different from any other condition that we have? So, for example, we have heart disease. We don't have a problem telling people, well, I've got a heart condition. We have memory difficulties. Why should it, be, why should it stop us from telling our friends so they can understand and they can sort of live with us and we can have a good relationship going forward. We shouldn't be shutting ourselves out of society. So getting engaged, keeping connected, being active in whatever sphere you can be active is really important. So it's not just the person's responsibility, but it's the family, the community, and the services that we have around them that um, help enable that. How does a carer of a person with dementia navigate the difficult path of caring while not forgetting their own needs? I think that's this is often forgotten. Um, it's becoming more obvious now, and it's it's raising people's awareness about it's not just the person with dementia, but it's the loved one that that is with them as well. So a person with heart disease can still do the essentials for themselves, can do the problem solving they need to do in daily lives. They'd still be able to manage their finances. They'd still be able to go out, maybe drive, do other things. Early on, when someone has dementia, they're probably going to be able to do many of these things. And then as symptoms get worse, or if they do progress, then they're going to have difficulty in doing these daily tasks, which we take for granted. And that's when the carer often has to step up 
and do all these things. So it's not just looking after themselves, but they're, they're looking after not physically, but instrumentally in helping their loved one um, through the next few years of their life. When I am in clinic and I provide a diagnosis of dementia to a person and their loved one is there, it depends on when that disease, what the stage of disease is at the time. So for example, if it's very early, then the primary thing for the carer is anxiety, not knowing what it is, not knowing what to expect, um, not knowing enough information about the condition. And that's where we can help them with that kind of information. So not just the specialists, the health services, but other support organizations have information packs, resources, people to talk to that can tell them over, over time, not, not overload your brain with information at one go, but have connection with the carer so they learn about the condition. So learning about the condition and what it can do, and what it might mean for their loved one is critical. Knowing about the treatments that are not available or available is also critical. So that's an important part of supporting a carer in the early phases of um, dementia affecting their loved one. As the disease progresses and the carer has to do more, then it shifts to other things, the, the psychological and the physical exhaustion that comes with looking after a person. So how do they look after themselves while looking after the person affected becomes the issue. And that's when support organizations, support services that have that in mind comes into the picture. Um, providing them with the opportunity of having some time to themselves to do the things that they need to do is critical. How do they do that? They need to know who to approach for such services. So again, it comes back down to having good integration between the people who diagnose the condition, the people who provide support services to people and their carers, and the health services that are need, needing to be wrapped around that um, for the person. Integration of these services is important for the carer because um, they don't, if they can go to a one-stop shop and find out about whatever they need to know, it's much easier for them. As it becomes more severe, then they're, they're, they're starting to grapple with, can I do everything by myself? What kind of physical help do I need at home to help look after my, um, my loved one with dementia? Or coming to the really difficult question of, it's really not possible at this point in time with the extent of supports that I can get to keep my loved one at home and they might need much more care and when that's when they 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 have to make a decision whether their loved one might need residential care these are really difficult pieces of decision making to navigate and so being connected with the system with the health system to help them work through it is really key well thank you i think that we've covered a lot of ground today and we've got touched on lots of areas that I feel that you would be very comfortable talking about in more more depth and and maybe there might be some opportunity in the future for us to explore that but in the meantime Kiora and thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today thank you Shrikanth 
Uh, my pleasure, Lynetta. Thank you for this opportunity. And, and I hope this is of some benefit to the people out there who are living with the condition.